So, hey, Ron, this is a conversation that you and Carolyn Shute had on October 21st about her book, A Recipe for Revolution. And we had this conversation actually in the middle of the woods on her land in Western Maine on a beautiful sunny day. And um, it was a great conversation. Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the handful, very few ways in which you know the pandemic has actually changed things for the better. So instead of sitting in the basement at the library, we were out at um, Carolyn's spread in Parsons Field. And um, yeah, it's actually I you know in thinking about you converting this to a podcast, I um, was thinking about it's a shame that people won't be able to see where we were and you know the, the trees in the middle of fall and the wood smoke drifting in and out of the picture and the Scotty dogs running around and Carolyn and I huddled around this folding table and um, really her in her element, as it were. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to say about this conversation was, um, and I, I mentioned this to Carolyn at the, at the beginning of the interview, um, was that there were two writers when I was a kid who really made me feel as though it were a possibility to be a writer myself. One of them was Stephen King and the other was Carolyn Chute. You know, just seeing her name on the cover of a book and learning what I learned about her background and who she was and how she wrote um, was hugely important to me, just sort of actualizing the possibility of being a writer. And, and so for me to do this interview really was not just a pleasure, but an honor. I'm glad you asked me. I'm so glad that you did it. And I remember you saying that in the interview and I, it just really resonated because it, there, it is so important that people see themselves and see people like themselves creating art and writing. And that was just such a, a great example of that. So thanks again for coming. And uh, hopefully our listeners will hear the cackle of the fire that Carolyn's husband built for us and be able to see some of the beautiful foliage and smell the wood smoke uh, that we all experienced when you were doing this interview. Yes, we have to be authorly now. Oh, yes. Yes, let's be very serious about oh, this. Oh, I'll get my tweed jacket out. <laughs> I did bring, I got my uh, Plutonian queen outfit over there in the wagon. I thought just in case I need it. Oh, nice. With the ball thing. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having us. So I wanted to say at the outset something that may embarrass you, and I hope that it won't, but I want to say it anyway. I was 13 when... Letourneau's used auto parts came out. And oh, you lived in Waterville? And I lived in Waterville. Yes. I oh, you, you go to the Railroad Square Cinema? Of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that book was important to me for a bunch of different reasons, but principally because at that age, it was around the time when I first asked my parents for a typewriter. Oh. <laughs> and... It was such an audacious, looking back, it was such an audacious thing to imagine that, you know, a redneck kid from Waterville could be an author, you know? Oh, yeah. It was weird to think we could be because all the others had their tweed jackets and the Correct. whole thing. Right. And so, but to see that book come out, to know who you were and where you were from and how you lived um, and the life that you had, and to even honestly, to see the name Letourneau on the cover of a book. Uh -huh. It meant a tremendous amount to me. Um, it made this little inkling of an idea that I had of being an author, it made it wow. actual in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise. Oh, that's and so, neat. That's and I know you didn't do it for that reason, right? You wrote the book because you wrote the book. But, but I think it's important for us as authors to understand the ways in which 
especially since so much of our work is done in a solitary way and, mm -hmm. and then we send it out into the world and we have no idea whether or not it actually lands anywhere you know right, what right. it's doing in, in do the it world. for yourself i just wanted to say that that was really important to me when i was and i got that oh. typewriter oh you did right? yeah <laughs> even though i don't think my parents could afford it but i think they knew mm -hmm. how important it was to me so but that was a big deal but to me. also if you actually wound up using it they would be happy it's when you get the kids something and then oh, they, I used it. <laughs> I used it for sure. You um, know, I let to say the. It, I could have written that and then it would have just stayed in the drawer. Yeah. Because I'm very shy and I don't push things. Even I, after beans. Yeah, and what happened was I was at the Stone Coast conference, and a guy who was there and a woman who were there really pushed to get this stuff pub my stuff published. It wasn't, I could never have done it by myself. And once it was there, this guy sent it to his editor. Well, there were some short stories that got published first, sorry. And then this guy sent my first book to his editor. Uh -huh. Because that editor and the president of the company, at, at that particular company, Houghton Mifflin, Tickner Fields Houghton Mifflin, yep. he, he came here and came to McDowell when I was there. He used to tell me all this stuff. Right, he said that um, he always remembers being in this in the room where they had the board and the editor coming in with that first book, and he said, "I want I wanted that book real bad, and I real and I got it." So later I got to know him. He was working class guy yeah. who went in the war World War Two. When he got out with the GI Bill, he went and got his degree in history and then he wound up being a book salesman and then he wound up being the president of Holt Mifflin because he just loved books. He yeah. says that's not why they become presidents now. Right. But he said then that was what it was. So I got thinking about it. and he and he loves snowman, which so many people hated. And he goes, <laughs> you know <laughs> it was it was kind of funny. I mean like he always goes, Wow, we gotta get more reviewers that are working class. They these you know, middle class professionals don't understand you, and and you really need more of that. He used to say all kinds of wicked, neat, encouraging things to me. About so did that he convince? Idea. Was it him that convinced you then that it was okay to sort of let it go and let it go? Well, out by of the publishing world? it, by you know, he accepted that book. Yeah. When the time he got here, probably there'd been a couple more published. In fact, the time he got here, I might have actually been with another company because he had retired. And that's interesting to me, and it sort, of, it sort of leads into the first question I wanted to ask you, which will seem simple on its surface, I think, but for those of us who do it, we realize it's not simple. And the question is, why do you write? And and more, so it's sort of a multi-part, mm -hmm. if you'll allow me. Yeah, one at a time, because I got ADHD. Sure. <laughs> I'll never remember them all. <laughs> well, they're all sort of the same question. And oh. I mean, uh, why, did, why do you write, why did you start, and why do you continue? Oh, Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I I probably, my childhood was so boring and safe and perfect. <laughs> you know, it was... In Cape Elizabeth. Yeah, and quite. We weren't Cape... Cape Elizabeth was different back in those days. I, I would imagine. Yeah, you had the movie stars of rich people right on the water, and then you have farms and working class people. You didn't have too many middle-class professionals until around the time I was in high school, they started to 
tear up the carrot fields and tear, cut the woods and build all these split level houses and then they moved in. Yeah. But it was like my folks were and my grandfolks were there every day. They came in from Portland, you know, over the bridge and came to visit. It was a very family, quiet life. Yeah. Um, the only horrible thing was school because it was mm -hmm. so creepy. Yeah. <laughs> very creepy. Um, um, the, it, it was, I mean, like, I, I was, excuse me a minute, I got no, no. applesauce in my brain. Um, um, I, um, wanted more, uh, you know, I'm easily bored. So <laughs> it was, uh, I go down to the pond, I go outside, I walk in the woods and do different things and then go in my room. And I had all these projects all the time. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I started to do a lot of pretending, like I had, um, you know, Barbie dolls they gave me, you know, for Christmas. And I said, well, I really would, they go, you want Ken to, or no, I don't like Ken. He's too dippy or something. No, I want G.I. Joe. He looks like Castro. <laughs> he looks like Castro. Actually, yeah. I don't know if I knew he was Castro at that time because I think he was a little before. Because wasn't Ca what, what, when was Castro taking over well, <laughs> taking over was, Cuba? What years? It was late fifties, right? Yeah. He right. said so. I was young. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't married yet. <laughs> I was married shortly after that. But um, yeah. And I thought that he was wicked cool when he was on the news. He'd stand there with all his guys, you know. And he wasn't like I love the Russians too. Banging their shoe, you know, Khrushchev. They were so much more interesting than the than the American guys who, right. you know, they don't, you know, they're dull. Anyway, so I um, then I had horses for them, and I did this like made up a whole little world. But then I started writing instead. I wrote up um. So by by the time I was like twelve, it turned into kind of like porn. I was really. I'm really into the porn thing, but I didn't want anybody to see it. But I, I uh. really was into writing porn. <laughs> and um, so I, excuse me. Um, so I did a lot of that. And then from there, I mean, novels and different things. But so the beans came out when you were, how old were you? Mid 30s? Oh, were you in your mid 30s? 37, maybe. My grandson was born. So you had been, had you been writing that whole time? Yeah, in and out of it. I um, see what happened was I I was married for a while to my my first husband. We went to night school in Portland. Yeah. To get our um, degree. The GRE. You know, whatever that is. Oh, not the GRE. Uh, Graduate. You know, it was uh, the actual thing. GED. Yeah. No, it was a, a diploma. Oh, you got a high school diploma. Yeah, it wasn't like studying for a test. You you just went and had classes. Got it. Okay. It was sort of like night school in college. Yeah. I loved it. It was so different than day school where you have the Prussian industrial military model for regular public school. Is the Prussian? There's no secret about it either. It's, a, it's made to create a military and an industrial bunch of people all the same with honors and losers and all that stuff. Right. This, this engine of class division. And you certainly touch on that in the book. Yeah, I, that, I hate that stuff, but, but I know it's natural. Humans do it, but I don't have to like it. But anyway, so <laughs> we we went to night school. It was different. I remember this man, Mr. Body. He was the, um, we just, you know, we still call them Mr. and Mrs. Um, he was an uh, English teacher at the Portland High School. Yeah. 
I loved him. He would carry on and do all this, like, um, entertaining stuff and read poetry with all this flair and all that. It was very interesting, and I started to like it so much better than when they hold you captive sure. and don't have to really try, you know, to hold your attention. Right. And was that... So I think about that in my own experience with teachers who maybe color outside the lines a little bit in the school where I was and, and gave me an indication that the interest that I had in reading and writing was maybe, you know, it made sense. Oh, mm -hmm. um, do you, do you feel as though that was the case with this teacher? Was it something that you, if oh. he was reading poetry in class and you're thinking, okay. He didn't talk about my writing. He was reading, he was talking sure. about the, um, he was teaching us literature, yeah. but it was just made it more interesting. Whereas before I was bored. Right. It wasn't it. so staid and sort of stuffy. And Yeah. When it wasn't scary, like teachers did awful things to kids when I was sure. out there in the fifties. But, but then I, after I moved to Gorham, my neighbor taught me in, um, into taking some night courses at you, uh, Pogo U. Right. And so I did, and I love that boy. And I, I don't understand all this stuff about taking standardized tests, and then they got to take a entrance test to college. I just started taking the courses, and then I go, I would like to go in the daytime now, and they go, okay, and I pay my money, and I got um, work study grants and loans, and the loans were teeny. Yeah. I mean, because the cost was teeny, it was so tiny then, and. Um, I, I thought I might major in one of the social sciences, but I just loved all the social sciences. I took them all. Right. A little of everything and some uh, the English stuff and some writing. Well, that makes sense to me, too, because it's you strike me as I think all novelists need to be interested in people, mm. you know, mm. but you strike me as particularly interested in the in the entirety of people, which is which is part of the reason why I think that this project, it's a, it is four volumes, correct? If I can get that last one, yeah, it's going to be four. Yeah, okay. not five. But it's massive. I mean, yeah. 3,000 pages, it's a scope that I can't even conceive of. As I'm one of those novelists who, no matter what I'm writing about, no matter how big I think it's going to be, it always lands around 300 pages, no matter oh, what. so lucky. But, but but you you work in both, right? Because Laterno's was what two hundred and fifty pages. That's a slender book. Yeah, that was in the beginning more of it. Then as as I got older, life took on more. Also, I, I got that first draft of that whole thing. Yeah, all those books were one big draft. Right, and it, it was big, but. It wasn't ready. It was very sketch. It was thin. It wasn't. It just as I read it, I go, "Oh, no well, one. sure." And um, <laughs> but I turned it in, and my editor's like, "Oh, well, um, it's big. We don't." Oh, and he, his, the big editor of the whole company at that time. I think we had moved on to. Um, yeah, we had moved on to Harcourt by then, and they they he sent me a letter through the mail, the big guy, mm -hmm. with suggestions of what to do. Oh, fun! And I took the envelope and I I didn't throw it away, but I stuffed it somewhere. <laughs> I don't even know where it is now. Nobody tells me what to do. Sure. Because now you've got this 
screaming voice in one ear. I, you know, I have to I have to watch it develop, and the people have to decide what sure. the characters have to decide what they're going to do. Absolutely. So I go, no, but so by by the time I um, it got. I'm trying to think. He, my editor, died in two or four, right? I hadn't. It hadn't moved. It was just in my drawer. My still one manuscript. Yeah, my agent, my wonderful agent Jane, secret agent Jane. She, she, um, she left me a message. I call her. She goes, Carolyn, you know, people gotta forget who you are. They gotta forget your work. You gotta, you gotta do something with that book. She goes, Have you ever thought of doing a book with? Just Jane and Mickey. Mm. I, oh, I hadn't even hung the phone up yet when I I could see the whole book going that way. Like you take and you take focus on certain characters, and you focus, and they can all be in the thing. In other words, Jane and Mickey could still be in the other ones too, sure. but their big focus would be that first one. Yeah. And so I was so excited. I went and um, threw some plant out. <laughs> these plants that were there and I set up my manuscripts. I started breaking them up. I go here. So that's how it started. Yeah. That phone call. Yeah. She said, you know, why don't you ever thought of doing those two? And so what has that process been like since then? The process of easy. breaking the man. Really? So easy. Really? Cause it's already, the characters are already visual. I could see them. They're already stuff. It's easy. I just have trouble getting away from my life here. I See, we don't have conveniences. Mm -hmm. We don't have plumbing. We don't, when, to fill a kettle of water to heat it, I have to put the faucet on and it dribbles out like tears out of a hose that goes out. And so all day I'm doing all this stuff and I can't not do it. And I want the house, you know, I'm not, oh, there's dust, there's mouse poops spiders in that house so bad and now my old dog it's like the tree house the spiders oh yeah <laughs> my my old dog brewster he's got this idea now that he's gonna pee pee all over the house mm. and he won't stop and i and i know that he's only got a little time left and i don't want to scold him sure so um and he's having trouble getting out the dog door they have a dog door um because jake our problem child i mean he showed up he would smash his way through the dog door and knock everybody over. So now these guys are a little bit blind and deaf. Not real blind, but, you know, funny. They really don't want to get in that box with him charging through. Sure. You know, so now they just wait, and then he can't hold it. And So the house is horrible. I mean, this is horrible. But I, the stuff I have to do, I have to cook. And I have to cook with food pantry stuff, which is intended to kill you. High calorie. You know, the, one of the selectmen, he goes, well, he goes, it's better than starving. I go, oh, diabetes, stroke, yeah. it's better than starving. Yeah. That stuff is horrible. And the good stuff is rotten. Michael got food, he got food poisoning from the meat, pork. The meat and the veggies, right? Like it's, yeah. Um, yeah. So basically what it amounts to is that, I mean, it's an interesting thing because it's something that I wanted to talk about. I had a question about, which is basically that, in order to do something like write, you need time, you need space. And if you, and, and exactly. the thing that principally affords us time and space in this culture is money. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so. Like so, Tolstoy. 
How so? It was cold in his room, but at least he had a room. Right. You know, and yeah, those people were the only ones writing back then. And then now it isn't that much different. Right. And so you feel as though, or the fact of the matter is you have too much to take care of in order to get the work done in the way that you would like to, or on the schedule you would like to. Right. Right. And so you would go away to McDowell or something along those lines. I don't. I think for a while they hated me anyway because <laughs> I'm just going to – it's my theory. They didn't tell me that. In fact, the staff comes up here to visit. They're my friends oh, really? because I went so many times in the past. But I don't know if they liked Snowman, but that's too bad. <laughs> but they got money from people funding, you know, which I think encouraged them to try to bring in people from all over the world, sure. which makes the competition harder, you know, for a little New England – girl <laughs> you know it's always hard right mm, yeah so a couple of specific things about the book that i wanted to ask you first in in my experience novelists usually fit into one of two big tents either minimalist or maximalist mm-hmm. less in terms of language and more just the volume of the size of the stories right i just was started a book by um Thomas Pynchon, he was a, my editor had him for a while. Maximalist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm reading it. um, I tried it twice and I couldn't quite get into it. Which one was it? It's um, V. Yeah. I I should try it again, but um, because I I don't never give up. There's been a couple, uh, you know, the um, hundred years of solitude. Yeah. I tried it once. I go, what? It sounds like tales or something. Then I got back in it. I love it's one of my favorites. I right. always think about how what I, that all meant to me, you know. So, so you got to keep trying. Is the tough part of those books for you just the scope of them? No. Like you. Well, maybe that's it was the what, what made me think of it when you said language. He's more into language than characters. Right. I love characters and oh, that's so evident in your work, especially the, this book. The Southern See, my father's from North Carolina, and they say the Southern tradition was a lot of character. Yep. Eudora Welty and Faulkner and all those guys. But, you know, I, I know that's probably, probably, I don't know if that's where it came from, but I know my relatives are a lot of characters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have my Southern ones. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, maybe that's something we should touch on then, because I there are obviously a lot of characters Yeah. in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, for me... One of them who stood out probably more than anybody else. I mean, Gordon obviously is sort of. Gordon actually reminded me of of um, Letourneau. Like there's a there's mm-hmm. a similar there's they're almost from the same lineage, right? Like right. they they're both sort of like of this world and mythical all at once. They're both responsible for lots and lots of people, mm-hmm. um, and they're both. Uh, essentially very decent and i wondered i had a really smart writer tell me once that as novelists we all have our obsessive topics yes that we keep coming back to over and over again Mm -hmm. to me when i drew that line between letourneau and gordon i realized that's probably that type of man Mm -hmm. is somebody you come back to and keep trying to tell the story of in different ways like you haven't gotten it right Uh, you know you keep doing can you talk about that a little bit what is it about that kind of character this sort of Mm-hmm. larger than life. They're, they're both really physically imposing, right? They're very tall. McLuhan uh, was very little. At the end, you never see him right? until see the, him very the very end, end. So you probably imagine big. Right. And then at the very end, 
which he's on the last page where you see him. Right. He's a little guy. Yeah. And so it was supposed to be startling that he's just this regular little, little guy in Maine, you know, who's <laughs> just a working class guy. And right. he's not, but he had that ability to, but that um, might have been all because of my fascination with the French. I have a very always was fascinated with French, especially when we went to Old Orchard Beach. Sure. <laughs> you know, and they were, it was so cool. They'd be talking. And, and then I met my friend Jackie and she, um, oh, she told me all this stuff. It was just pretty awesome. And Is Jackie the one who helped you with the, the patois? Yeah. In the, yeah. Okay. She's now back in Auburn because she's from Lewiston. Yeah. But she did live in Gorham for a while and we went to Pogo together. Nice. But the, um, the, I've never told anybody this before. Because Michael says you better watch out when you tell people this, but the thing with Gordon and all these women was really my father and my mother. Really, my mother was like a hundred women, and my father was this guy who just wanted everybody happy. Huh. He wanted everybody happy. He wasn't real talkative. My I have a, two brothers, and one of them and me are very talkative, but my father wasn't especially talkative, but. He just would always say, I just, he had Southern accent, right? He'd go, I want everybody happy, just everybody happy. And he, he, but my mother would be. So he would actually say it. Yeah, oh, it yeah. wasn't just how he behaved. He would actually articulate that. Yeah. And my mother would, um, she had so many personalities. She huh. could be all these things. And she would, he was surrounded constantly by all these people when it was just her. He was trying to please one person who housed a hundred. Oh, he wanted us all to be happy. He he really was, um, you know, somebody who he he came from a huge family, you know, yeah. and he was the oldest and always loved kids and you know kids were attracted to him. And so there's that line between your father and Gordon then in your mind. Actually, Gordon's probably more like me as far as the talking <laughs> <laughs> and the political stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely. Because what happens is you start off, you're writing things, and it wasn't even an idea. It was like, oh, I guess I'll write a story. But no, I never do that. I just started these characters, and I'm trying, moving them around, and I realize it's coming out that way yeah. about my mother and father. But then they just take off on their own. And right, and that's, I mean, it's so obvious that your your stories begin and end with character, even though there's there's plenty to, to chew on sociologically and politically, I think, Um mm -hmm. You know, another character in this book who really stands out to me, of course, is Bree. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, my, my mom was Bree, too. Oh, really? She had this very juvenile kind of way a lot of the time. Right? Although, but Bree has really grown up in certain ways. I mean, right. she, I, I would argue that she, what's interesting about this story to me is that you, you deal with, she's 15 years old, and she has the sort of agency that we culturally, we don't allow 15 year olds to possess. Right. 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 Um, I find that really interesting. It's almost like a third rail topic where like she has, a, she has a defined and overt sexuality to her, even though she's only 15, 15, you get it at 12, <laughs> you get but, it. but we don't talk about that. Right? Oh, you know, it's so Victorian these days. I can't stand it. Yeah. People are so Victorian. Now I grew up as a young adult in the sixties, they were not Victorian. <laughs> this is like a right. backlash. It seems to be. Yeah, the pen, it's a pendulum swing, the, the yeah. direction sort of thing. Yeah. Because it is. To me, it strikes me as one of those things that we all know and will acknowledge privately. 
and have experienced in our own lives. Right, right. Like, like the age of reason seems to coincide with the age of sexual awakening, right? Like, and that's oh, yeah. 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, but it doesn't have a whole lot of cultural currency. And so it's, it's surprising. It's almost bracing to see it represented so baldly in, in a novel these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know I, when I got married when I was 16, I didn't, and my, my daughter, my mother and I, did too. We were, you, pun. My mother did too. She did. Yeah. See yeah. that generation. My, my daughter and I were on the phone the other day and she goes, Oh, you were young and you married my father, <laughs> you know, or meaning, He's difficult and stuff. And I go, right. I, I, I was okay. It was nothing. It was not a major suffering. It was and it wasn't. I mean, no more than anything in life is suffering. It was. And so somebody like Bree is just true to your own experience. That doesn't seem, it doesn't seem odd to you to portray a 15-year-old girl as having that sort of agency, both in terms of, I mean, she writes the recipe for a revolution. She right. undermines, I mean, she takes over the meeting at the 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 mansion with the monkey, the kids in the monkey outfits. Yeah, right, the, <laughs> right, right, um, right. Which I was telling my wife about as I read it. I couldn't keep it to myself. Um, it's such a great scene. Um, those but, people, yeah, Cape Elizabeth had a lot of those kind of ladies and men. Oh, for sure. But I actually have friends out there now who are into that stockholder activism stuff. Right. And they're very sincere people. They're very... Um, and so what do you think... In some ways like those people. What do you think about that then? So, you know, stockholder activism, co corporations and rich individuals divesting themselves of, yeah. of does it? Well, I have an anarchist bent and I believe we all got to do it, you know, diversity of tactics. Sure. And everybody's got to do it their way as long as everybody's doing it, you know, questioning how this is going and working to. So that's not something you would look at and say, well, that's not effective or that does, that's not meaningful. It's a piece of it. And everybody's going to do it in their own way. You expect, you know, like those people, those, you know, people that are kind of um, richish and that way, right, to go out in the street wearing black masks <laughs> and, right, uh, and doing – and um, let's see what else do anarchists do you know they throw the canisters back of the cops and i can't picture them they use yeah. hockey sticks now oh, hockey oh to get the canister back <laughs> great <laughs> and leaf blowers to blow the to leaf blow the gas blowers away. awesome see technology works <laughs> they picked that up from uh, hong kong actually oh hong kong with the umbrellas and stuff um, oh poor hong kong though it's yeah not working out um there was something i wanted to ask you about I was saying to Rachel earlier today that, I, that Maine has a really big literary community now. It does, yes. I've heard about that. <laughs> but but I think where you and I are a little bit different in a, a sortly rare, a slightly rarer breed is is native born mm -hmm. novelists, particularly without any um, formal training, formal education in writing. Right. So we're both the same in that way. I didn't go beyond high school. I dropped out of college after less than a semester. And yet you and I somehow found ourselves working in this medium where I think people look at us sort of cockeyed, like, how did you, how did you get here? You know, like, what do you? Yeah, because you didn't. Um, yeah, because they think, because I did have a, a teacher that I um, liked a lot in college. I didn't finish either. I, yeah. I left after a while because I felt like I had everything I wanted out of it. And right. I feel real good about college. But I had this teacher, Ken Mosen. And he was just awesome. He's Russian. And, uh, you know, he's very um, expressive and creative. And 
wild. And that really, really got me inspired in that way. Like I, the energy that come out of somebody like that in the way. And he also wasn't, to me, he wasn't like I pictured writers. Yeah. He was more um, a working class in my mind. So it made it sort of like, sort of what I was talking about with Letourneau's used auto parts where I saw it. I saw that name on the cover. I saw who you were, and then all of a sudden it became real to me that it was possible to be a writer. Yeah, right. But, but I, I had worked. I had worked with him in two or three. Co- uh, well, there was lit- literature, and then a couple of writing ones, poetry, and the other one, the fiction. Okay. But it wasn't like I didn't like pick up a formula from him or anything it was the energy right sure. so i was out to kenny bunkport at a thing a woman arranged for me and she and i both were she was a writer for yankee magazine and yep. we're answering different questions and a guy come up to me um kenny bunkport folks and they and they're older couple and he goes did you go to college did you ever take in writing courses in college and then the, the and the wife's watch me you know they were probably not alive now they were very oldish then but um i go oh yeah usm uh well they didn't call it usm then it was pogo you and and he looks at his wife he, and then they start walking away he goes see i told you she couldn't have done it without training yeah. and then they walked away and i thought training i never associated <laughs> the word training with ken it was more like you know, like sometimes just having somebody read your work back in the day, sure, in college anyway, would get you to look at it in a different way. It was really helpful to have to share it with, especially kindred spirits. Sure, and there were a few there that. Well, it's interesting that anecdote because I think one of the things that people don't realize is that until the past six years or so, writing was a very much egalitarian pursuit. It wasn't professionalized in the way that it is now. And so you, you, there was no such thing as an MFA program. The newspaper writers ago. were the same. They right. were working class people. Right. And they, you know, they, they learned how to do it by doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you and I come to this in, in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the reason I bring up the fact that we're native born Mainers is I was reading this thing and knowing that I was coming to talk to you, I immediately thought of you. So there was a, uh, it was in the New Yorker, this article that I was reading. Oh, mm-hmm. Um, and it was about the Senate race between Susan Collins and Sarah Gideon. Um, and it mentioned that Collins' campaign was going after Gideon for being, for being from away, um, using what the writer refers to as Maine's, quote, nativism as a cudgel against Sarah Gideon because she's from Rhode Island, I think. Originally. Rhode Island. Oh, that's where White House is from. There you go. That wonderful Sheldon. <laughs> and so the, the first thing I thought was, you know, are we are we nativists? Because that word has a really negative connotation to it. Do you think that that by and large, as Mainers, we're nativists? That that you know, I mean, tell me what it exactly is supposed to mean in, in when they use it like that. To, it, to me, what it, it basically means xenophobic and dis, oh, and dismissive, just dismissive of people who aren't us, basically. I I, I know that I I. Here's an example, all right? We had neighbors up the road who were, we, we, didn't, we weren't real sure. Or they seemed like they were Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. maybe from New York or something. 
and they had a big porch and we go by and we wave and they were waving and Michael helped them one time and the car broke down and then they were helping people when their cars got, guy got his keys locked in his car and we did that, but they were, they still were a big family and they, as they say, they do often keep themselves because, but they were friendly. Right. We loved them. I, I always said to Michael, some people have a problem with people from say Puerto Rico or something. I love those guys, and I wouldn't even mind like seeing more of them. But what more, what I don't like is when people move in and start telling you what to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? And right. it's a different value. And that, but those guys had the same value as us. But some people they they come in and they start kind of bullying you around. Right. That bothers me, and I don't want too many crowds because, you know, of any kind of humans. So in that way, I'm. Maybe a little worried about crowds, but that's down on the coast. <laughs> that's that's, well, the, that's the thing, right? All those that writer community there sounds crowded to me. <laughs> it is. It is a little bit. And honestly, one of the things, one of the many things in the book that I responded to really strongly, almost instinctively, was the way that you write about the way the the inhabitants of of um, the settlement, in particular, they have like bad reactions to being around the ocean. Oh, <laughs> you know, because I because I recognize that from my own childhood, like I lived an hour's drive away from the coast, but it might as well have been the dark side of the moon. And I think yeah. I think people who when they think of Maine, who aren't from here, they think of the coast yeah, exclusively. Right. Yeah. Like this this part of the state doesn't exist to them. And yet there are so many of us for whom this is the only part of the state that does exist. And you do a great job of showing that in the book. Well, I grew up in Cape Elizabeth, but we didn't live on the water. No. But I could leave this high school and take a walk down by the Girl Scout Club. And there was this big rock with ocean would come in. This big ocean come up to the rock. And I used to love to walk out there and stare at that. But that was about my limit. I hated the beach. My brother was afraid of the foghorn. <laughs> well, he was little. I got sunburned. I... Got melanoma. I, you know, I, I'm not an ocean lover. Right. But that was pretty. But you know it, and see, that's one of the things about the book is that you grew up in Cape Elizabeth. You live here now. This seems like the part of the state that really speaks to you. Oh uh, yeah. But yeah. you know and understand that other world, and so you're able to portray mm. these really disparate environments with mm. equal authority and and I think precision. One of the things that really jumped out at me was the way that you. Your, your characters and your stories are so physical. And in this book, the way that you depict the settlement in terms of it's loud, everything's always moving. Mm-hmm. People are skinning their knees and, and, you know, building things and breaking things down. And then, but by contrast, when we find ourselves in a, a moneyed environment, everything is whisper quiet. Yeah. That- Not even <laughs> the animals make noise. Yeah, the poodle, he was... <laughs> right? <laughs> And I love that it's it's it struck me as so true, and that's what I mean when I think when I say it seems to me you understand both worlds. Um, yeah, it's it's through that depiction, that sort of depiction, where it just feels authentic to me. I can never blame any humans for anything they do because if you look back far enough, you know, like get on Pluto and you look down, you see that we're just monkeys, and we are. You know, I refer to us as house apes. House apes, yes, it's well-dressed apes, <laughs> right? That's what um, Hannah um, Holmes, 
her book was called The Well-Dressed Ape, yeah. and she talked about that. They, um, we just, we don't make choices. We are, we're as reflexive as a bug. I mean, really, if we love red, it's because our eyes see red. I right. really love it, you know, and I just don't believe there's choices. It just hmm. seems silly to me. It seems like it's kind of left over from religion where people were punished for um, bad choices, like not making God happy. It's kind of left over from that, that whole idea that, oh, they made wrong choices. And somebody who's got alcoholism, oh, they made a bad choice. Right. They, they, pro they probably got a lot of anxiety that got them into it, and now they're hooked. I don't know, the whole thing just seems like not a choice. Well, and it also raises an interesting question. Were you raised Catholic? Were you Catholic? No, my great-grandmother, they were Irish. On my grandmother's side, main, my main grandmother, they were Lynch and Fitzgerald. They live in York, Maine, down here. Uh -huh. Some of them had left Massachusetts, where uh, and they worked in the factories. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think Lawrence, bread and roses, but I don't think I don't think that particular crowd was involved in that. But I like <laughs> to think it. Um, but the, my great grandmother, Annie, she says that. The, the priest came by and said they had to give money. And she goes, we don't have any money. He yeah. goes, you better have some money the next time you come. She goes, like hell, I will. So that was that. <laughs> and they, so they started going to an, another one when they got to when she got to Maine, different things. Part of the reason I asked is because the idea of, of being without choice, I was raised Catholic, and, and one of the things that I could never reconcile was the idea that God is omniscient, in other words, that everything that has happened is happening and will happen. He knows. And yet we have free will simultaneously. Yeah, right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I know it. There's a few things like that. No sense. So, right? the, so the, the idea that we're not, we're not making choices is actually really interesting to me in that regard. Yeah. Um, yeah. So talking about the physicality of your characters and your stories, too, I wanted to ask... So you remind the readers over and over again of what your characters look like and how they move, almost as though you're introducing the characters over and over again. Well, if I'm sitting here now, I see you guys throughout the whole visit. Yeah. I don't just see you when you show up and then you're just this empty space. <laughs> so know? it just makes sense, right? Yeah, I want them to feel like they're there and just keep seeing and keep noticing things about them. And yeah, because I, I guess... Maybe I'm not even thinking of the reader. I hate to be selfish, but, you know, kind of in my little world, making up my, my characters. Of I kind of like to see them myself. It just, it strikes me as sort of almost an old-fashioned, um, and by old-fashioned, I mean in terms of, like, contemporary literature. I don't know how much contemporary fiction you read, but it does not dwell on the physical at all anymore. I notice a lot of it does not, um, yeah. Which is weird, because yeah, it's like, I know. You know, as you say, like, here we are, like, I keep looking at you, I keep noticing things about your uh, physical being, right? There's a few that do. One would be Madison Bell, Madison yep. Smart Bell, or he does, but who did I just read? Oh, I did just read the plane, uh, On the Plane of Snakes. Have you read that? It's not a novel. It, it's um, no, all through. It. I love that one, but what did I just find? Oh, um, The Good Lord Bird. Yep. He kind of does it, and somebody loaned me two of his books, that one and the new one, 
And that one, too, you kind of keep seeing them all, you know, and he's got a million characters. And a similar approach to he treats very serious things with a good dose of humor, right? He does, and he also seems like Which you he's do a as nice well. guy. Like, he kind of sees people nice, you know? Even the, the mob guy and everybody's kind of nice. And I got thinking, somebody said one time, don't think authors are just like their characters you might be disappointed <laughs> yeah. if you meet them and they brush you up. <laughs> yeah don't meet your heroes and and don't and don't you know the old chestnut about not conflating the art with the artist yeah right, right. right. <laughs> i think that's true of me too but um so you really mean you mean to your dog maybe no <laughs> no i'm actually nicest to him um hammering on the physicality thing one more time i i it makes me think again of brie her height and her hair and her asymmetrical face, which I found really fascinating. Do you remember, was that a choice that her face was, her eyes were going to be asymmetrical or did it, she just present herself to you that way? She did, but um, I have a, up in the attic, a newspaper article about a girl whose eyes were too far apart. Yeah. And the town, they, the town, the people in town loved her so much. She was a, friendly nice kid right and they all loved her and they got together and raised the money to have her surgeons do something to her skull to move her eyes farther apart they were i mean closer together her <laughs> eyes were far apart how long ago was this 80s oh so it was a while ago it's an old newspaper thing up there in the pile huh somewhere so i thought of that i mean it wasn't even a thought more it was more like it pops it was just interesting to you, right? With ADHD stuff pops in head, <laughs> you know, this pops in, this pops out, this pops, a lot right. of stuff. You want to write it down quick. I think that's also just true of us as novelists too. You know, I, it reminds me of um, there was a priest who committed suicide in Waterville years and years ago, and he um, he jumped off the Kennebec, uh, the the bridge over the Kennebec. Oh. And oh. but before he did, so I'm reading an article. Before he did, he took off his hat and his shoes and his glasses, and he lined them all up very neatly on the sidewalk. And that detail, see, you're responding to it physically. That yeah. detail, I was like, that's the story, right? Like there's okay. there's something in that about somebody who's ready to end their life. It's still important enough to him to take his things and arrange them very carefully. And what is that's what is the mechanism in somebody's head, right? We wanted you to know if you didn't see him jump, you would know that he did. Maybe. that Oh, that was him. That was Father Bob. You know what I mean? He, that's, he must have jumped over the... And this is what we do, right? Like, we take that one detail and we start right. telling a story. Right. Like, this oh, was right. his intention, you know? <laughs> right. so, so, to me, it's not just ADHD. It's just what we do as novelists. You know, we take... Right. Maybe these... maybe all novelists have a little... <laughs> it could be. <laughs> it could so. be. <laughs> Um, something I really wanted to ask you about. Um, Don't let uh, if he watch your stuff. If he starts to go pee on it, you know what? Yell at him. He can pee on whatever. Oh, well, he wants yeah, but he might electrocute his or himself. Um, speaking of animals, so mm -hmm. I mentioned this earlier off camera, but I wanted to ask you. You touch on this, and you don't use this term, but you touch on it over and over in the book. So, like me, you seem deeply suspicious of the notion of human exceptionalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right yeah <laughs> that there's something innately special about people that makes us better than and thus more important than the other earthlings with whom we share the planet and i use that term in the book where um human earthlings, human right, earthlings. to distinguish them from the others we do we are better to ourselves 
But ants think they're better. Blue jays think they're better. Each one thinks they're better. Right. It's just like Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> they're better. You know. But, but what about <laughs> the differences that we have the power to act on our supposed... Yeah, we're doing a great job, aren't we? <laughs> and that's what I wanted to ask you about because I feel like that's an important – it's of the many themes and the many moving parts in this book. That, to me, stands out as well. Like what what's your take, broadly speaking, on the relationship between humans and other animals? And is there a connection in your mind between that relationship and how we conduct ourselves as the supposed stewards of the planet? Because you, there's a lot of talk about climate as well mm. in this book. So. Mm. What do you feel like is the general human relationship with animals and, and how does that inform the way we, be, we behave toward the planet? Well, you know, some of the stuff I've read about the human mind is like they say, we have to have some empathy or we would eat our kids. Mm. So well, there's a certain amount. But some people have it more than others. I don't know if it's developed or they just have, or we just have to make sure there's plenty of us that have empathy and some that don't because if everybody has empathy, then you wouldn't even protect yourself. Right. You have to have some in the crowd that are going to be the hard guys to protect the crowd. It just seems that way to me. Sure. So dogs, for instance, <laughs> are evolved with us for so many thousands of years that we do have uh, – well, they know how to manipulate us and all that, and, but we – we are manipulated by them through that empathy thing. I imagine that's it. Um, some, like people will look at them as ugly bugs, you know, and probably if we didn't, there might be some bugs that would poison us. I mean, I think it's all adaptive stuff. I hate to put such a cold eye on, on this. <laughs> no, but... this is interesting because I, I, I'm coming at it. My point of view is I see animals you know, planet-wide is sort of helpless in the face of our oh. our rampage. And you are actually, it sounds like you're giving them much more, um, what's the word, agency. Like the dog is manipulating us. Yeah, oh, sure yeah. Is. <laughs> yeah, right. no, that's interesting to me. Say well, more about that. yeah, but they, we still are making a mess of stuff. Um, there's, there's two books that I really love. One, um, Gary Sent, Gary and... Um, well, Margaret's his sister-in-law, and Beth's wife, you know, at Gulf of Maine. Mm -hmm. They sent um, The Hidden Life of Trees. I love that book. But also there's one called uh, The World Without Us. Yeah, I know that one. I'm reading it over again. I think I read it a hundred times. He's talking about, I mean, boy, <laughs> I don't know. We have, we have made a mess. and But it was, don't. Don't you think, I mean, it was like our job to do that. I mean, not that it was preordained, but that our, we are curious little monkeys, you know, but we don't have any real power to, we don't have wisdom. Well, if you, you know, no. And we also, and ultimately I think you're right. We don't have real power. Do you ever, you know, George Carlin, the comedian? Oh, I want him for president, but he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> but but he had a great bit about, um, well, two things he would say, you know, everybody's talking, this is in the 80s, so a long time ago, but talking about like, we got to save the planet. And he's like, people, the planet's not going anywhere. We are. Pack your shit because it's time to go. And then he had this other bit about how maybe what it is talking about, like, we're curious little monkeys. He said, maybe all it is is that the universe just wanted plastic and didn't know how to. <laughs> yes, that's what I had a little thing like that See? too. It was called Totally Consummate. It was plastic eating bugs. 
Yeah. I mean, little things. Yeah. Right. It seems that way because the plastic's big. I thought, you so know. Maybe we're fulfilling our destiny by screwing everything <laughs> up and then we can just. No, yeah. Sorry, you were And then we say. can leave. It's like, you know. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about George Collin. I said, Michael, who should we be running against the current guys that are running for president? Mm. Like, if we were our own party, like, we were the one, we were the, um, what kind of party would we be? The folks party, right? And we want, we don't want those two guys, <laughs> George Collin, because he's got all this. Yeah, what's his name? Uh, Trump is very entertaining, mm. <laughs> and so George Collin is too. But oh, yeah. he's, but he's cool. He's a nice guy. <laughs> so, but he's dead. But he is dead. Yeah. Do you find Trump entertaining? I think he's a bore. Maybe. Well, all I listen to is democracy now. She has these clips. All right. Entertaining. What's the word? Draws your eye. It's distracting. It's distracting. Exactly. Exactly. While they're doing all their stuff, trying to get rid of civil, you know. Exactly. The polluters are big. They're big. Because there is a movement against them that's real dangerous to them. It's all right if we fight over race and sex and... um, whatever abortions and guns that's fine but as long as we don't talk about as long as we're fighting amongst ourselves right right i'll take that from you i'm gonna take that away from you i'm taking that from you you know (laughs) you know it's the monkeys right and now these guys are getting they're watching us they got these you know the think tanks um the bradley foundation you know different ones they're they're watching us and they go we gotta be one step ahead 10 steps ahead of those right, guys. Right, because we're starting to turn our eyes toward them, and they know it. <laughs> well. Um, it's gone. So one last question, simple one. What's next? I don't know. I got I to gotta go get the CAT scan in my brain, right? Let's see what's Apple going sauce. on there. I, w- I would like to, um, yeah, once I get these health problems squared away, the COVID thing is annoying because Michael has to be home more yeah. with the COVID thing. And if I could get another book advance, it might help. But, mm. You know, I'm waiting. In December, well, it would be February, the soft cover comes out. Yep. But I don't know even if they, publishing might be having a hard time. With Amazon own everything now, I mean. <laughs> From what I understand, actually, books, independent bookstores are doing better than they have in a long time. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but the people come in social distance and wear masks and things. Yeah, and and a lot of them are doing a lot of their businesses online. Has moved yeah, online. Gary said that he would. Yeah, and he mails it out. Yeah, yeah. I've always done that because I don't go up to Brunswick to pick up a book. Yeah. Of course, and then there's Portland with Stu's son. What Stu's son? Yep, Ari. Ari, right, right, yep. yeah. Yeah, I used to do stuff with Bookland, a lot of stuff with Bookland, which was his dad's thing. Yep. I was just looking at a picture this morning of Joanne Renan was the buyer for Bookland. Yeah. Look at this picture. It was the 80s. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think I think the independent bookstores are doing better, certainly better than they were 10 years ago. I like to hear that. Yeah. That's great. So it's, um, I think there's reason to be hopeful. But the publishers, I don't know. What's with them? I know they work at home a lot now. Like everybody. Mm. Well, I'm told that we're out of time. Oh. <laughs> I heard I heard the voice. Oh. Um, thank you so much for having me here. This is oh, great. It was uh, easy for the audience. <laughs> <laughs>